Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of execution. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. New York City is rarely quiet, and yet the evening of June 19, 1953 was oddly still. The regular 8 p.m. hustle and bustle had frozen. The police were on edge, expecting a riot to break out at any moment. Because it wasn't just across the city that people sat intently by their radios, holding their breath, waiting for the news. It was across the world. At Sing Sing Prison, just north of the city, things were just as tense. Husband and wife, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, sat in a room together, waiting to be called. They didn't look like the heads of a communist espionage ring. Both were on the shorter side with dark hair. Julius had a mustache and wire-framed glasses. Ethel had a round face and thin lips that she usually kept pursed. Before their arrests, they'd been an unassuming, respectable couple. Now, they were the most notorious criminals in the world. And that evening, they were said to be executed by the electric chair. Their alleged crime was what everyone in America feared being accused of, spying for the Soviet Union. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, a seemingly ordinary couple accused of being communist spies in the 1950s. Some claim that the Rosenbergs single-handedly managed to escalate the Cold War, but others argue that the pair were fatal victims of political panic. Today, we'll delve into the Rosenbergs' world. We'll discuss who Julius and Ethel were, the people in their circle, and the investigation and trial that ultimately condemned them. Next time, we'll explore whether the Rosenbergs' actions actually merited their punishment and three theories related to their case. First, that they were the victims of anti-Semitism. Second, that their spying was critical to the Soviets developing a nuclear arsenal. And finally, whether or not Ethel Rosenberg was framed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. 
Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. In the 1930s, the world was a tense and uncertain place. As fascism spread across Europe, the global balance of power shifted. In Germany, Hitler rose to power and pushed for global domination. While farther east, another specter loomed, communism. Americans looked at the Soviet Union with both fear and anticipation. Communism was the mysterious unknown. While many Americans were wary of it, Plenty of others were enthralled by its ideals. The Great Depression had left up to a quarter of the U.S. workforce unemployed. It made capitalism's huge wealth gaps look worse every day. It wasn't surprising, then, that in the cramped tenements of New York's Lower East Side, communism thrived. A sense of solidarity grew among the inhabitants, many of whom were Jewish immigrants at a time of extreme anti-Semitism. This was the world where Julius and Ethel grew up and fell in love. In 1935, Ethel worked as a secretary for a packing company. She was politically active when it came to workers' rights, often helping organize union strikes. But she also loved to sing opera. Protest became the ideal arena where she combined her passions. One night in 1936, as she waited in the wings before a performance, she spied a young man looking at her curiously. When he came over, he introduced himself as Julius Rosenberg, an 18-year-old student at City College of New York. He thought she looked nervous, and he wanted to reassure her before she went on. It was love at first sight. The two bonded over their shared political ideals, Like Ethel, Julius was an activist. When he wasn't studying for his electrical engineering degree, he participated in a group called the Young Communist League. Julius was so fearless that he protested a Nazi ship in the harbor by ripping off its swastika flag. As soon as Julius graduated in 1939, he and Ethel got married. While politics had brought them together, Their activism took a back seat as the young couple looked for stability. According to the Atomic Heritage Foundation, Julius left the Communist Party in 1942 and got a job in the U.S. Army Signal Corps as a civilian engineer. 
Before long, Ethel became a housewife and stay-at-home mother to their first child. The radical activism of their youth stalled. They carried on with life as usual. Or at least, that's the story that they told. One night in November 1944, Ethel's sister-in-law, Ruth Greenglass, stopped by for a visit. Over dinner, Julius and Ethel revealed a bombshell secret. They were working for the Soviet Union, and they needed her help. Ruth was baffled. It seemed like a far-fetched claim. But the Rosenbergs went on to reveal something else even she didn't know. Ruth's husband was actually working on the atomic bomb. This report rocked Ruth's world. Her husband, David Greenglass, was just a lowly army serviceman who'd been stationed out west on a clandestine project since earlier that year. Yet the Rosenbergs seemed to have a lot more insight about the secret project than she did. For the past five years, the U.S. had been harnessing the power of nuclear fission. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt set up a committee at Columbia University to study uranium. Out of that, he eventually authorized what became known as the Manhattan Project. The military set up top-secret testing facilities in the desert of Los Alamos, New Mexico, where David was now. The American public had no knowledge of this yet, but Julius did. As Ruth listened attentively, Julius went on to explain that David could help the communist cause. The next time Ruth went out to visit him, he could share what he'd seen at the base. Then she could relay that info back to Julius. At first, Ruth was apprehensive. Like the Rosenbergs, she strongly believed in communism, but this was a lot to ask. To reveal government secrets to the enemy was serious. Or at least the unofficial enemy. While the communist USSR was with the Allied powers in the war against the Nazis, the Americans didn't act that way. They distrusted their Soviet ally and weren't sharing any military secrets. Julius used this point to argue that David would want to help. It was only fair that the Russians have access to the same technology if they were fighting the same battle. And the U.S. alone shouldn't have that kind of power. His plea struck a chord with Ruth. She was still worried about the risks, but she became convinced that she should at least talk to her husband about the idea. A few days later, Ruth was on a train to New Mexico. After her long journey, she met with David on December 2, 1944. And as they walked around the city, Ruth told him about Julius's proposition. And to her surprise, David was thrilled. It seemed that his shared roots, he'd grown up in the same political climate as the Rosenbergs and was a believer in communism too, were enough. That night, he told Ruth everything he knew about the facilities at Los Alamos, the layout, how many workers it had, and the names of major scientists. And because Julius instructed Ruth to not write anything down, she spent the night rigorously memorizing all of the details. Two days later, Ruth took the train back to New York. 
Her first meeting upon arriving was with the Rosenbergs, and she told them everything. More information would follow hot on her heels. About a month later, in January 1945, David came home on leave. This time, he brought sketches of the high-explosive lenses he'd helped build. In the safety of his living room, he described what he'd seen and heard in Los Alamos. Then, according to David, Julius took the drawings, photographed them, and transferred them onto microfilm, using equipment that his Soviet handler gave him. That way, the evidence could be rolled up and passed on discreetly. The mission seemed to be a success. Yet Julius still wanted more from David. Upon his return to New Mexico, he was instructed to gather even more intel. Julius proposed that David meet with one of his contacts out west and hand over the new information directly to them. This would speed up the process so the Soviets wouldn't have to wait to get the intel they desperately needed. David agreed. In June of 1945, both he and Ruth were back in New Mexico. Then, they met the contact at a boarding house in Albuquerque, about 90 minutes south of Los Alamos. There, a man with dark hair and deep-set eyes waited for them. He greeted them with, I come from Julius. David handed the man some technical sketches, and in return, he was given an envelope with $500 cash, about a year's worth of rent. Then, they went their separate ways. David never learned the man's name. Outside of the Rosenberg Circle, the world continued to rumble with developments. Just over a month later, on July 16, 1945, in the New Mexico desert, the U.S. detonated the first atomic bomb ever. And a few weeks after, on August 6, 1945, the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb over the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Three days later, it did the same to Nagasaki. More than 100,000 people died. Most of them were civilians and children. The age of nuclear warfare was born through a devastating wave of destruction and death. But as the world raged on, things calmed down for the Rosenberg and Greenglass families. David left the Army and returned to New York. Together, he and Julius started the GNR Engineering Company together, By all appearances, the Rosenberg spy work was done. Four years later, on September 3, 1949, the Pentagon got a disturbing message from one of its spy planes. The aircraft had detected a large amount of radiation in the atmosphere above a lake in Russia. That could only mean one thing. The Soviets had detonated a nuclear bomb. Somehow, they'd figured out the technology. Or someone had told them exactly how to do it. Coming up, the hunt for a traitor. Hi, I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast, And That's What We Drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. 
we're also into the occult uh, to chat about. Not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. On September 23rd, 1949, President Harry Truman made a shocking announcement. The Soviet Union had successfully developed their own nuclear weapon. The atomic bomb had been the U.S.'s ace in the hole, but now their rival had one too. This news was completely unexpected. While the Americans knew the Soviets would figure out the technology eventually, they'd predicted it would take a few more years at least. The speed of the Soviet bomb raised serious concerns that there was a leak in intelligence operations. The question turned to who the leak might be, which kicked off the manhunt for the mole. What the Soviets didn't know was that the Americans were reading telegrams sent between the USSR and its American consulates. As agents combed through telegrams dating back to 1944, they discovered something unsettling. A British-sponsored scientist was in the U.S. working on atomic energy. More importantly, he'd passed documents onto the Russians. British intelligence looked through their files for anyone who might fit the bill. And after much triangulation, they narrowed in on a name, Klaus Fuchs. Fuchs was born in Germany, where he'd belonged to the Communist Party, which openly opposed the Nazis. When Hitler came to power, Fuchs fled the country for Great Britain. There, he received a degree in physics. But when World War II began, he and other German immigrants were rounded up by the British government and sent to internment camps in Canada. The British feared that they would help the Nazis, despite the fact that many of them had escaped the fascist party. In December of 1940, Fuchs was allowed to return to Britain with one caveat. He was to use his physics training to help a joint Anglo-American effort build an atomic weapon in New Mexico. When he realized what he was helping create, though, and the unlimited power it would give the U.S., 
he turned into a spy instead. Fuchs went on to pass intel through a man named Anatoly Yakovlev, who was responsible for sending the information to Moscow. It was nearly 10 years later, in January 1950, and about four months after the Russians tested their own atomic bomb, that Fuchs was arrested. Without any way to deny his activities, he confessed to spying for the Soviets. That's when the dominoes started to fall. On May 23, 1950, four months after Fuchs was apprehended, the FBI arrested another American spy, Harry Gold, the same man who David met in New Mexico years before. This arrest caused panic for the Rosenbergs and Green Glasses. It felt like it was only a matter of time before authorities connected the dots between Gold and them. Soon, the feds would arrest them for espionage, and the outcome would not be good. Julius warned David to leave the country. He also gave him $1,000 in cash and told him to go to Mexico City. There, he could contact the Soviet ambassador, who'd help his family reach Czechoslovakia, where they'd be safe. For some reason, though, David was reluctant to flee. Instead, he waited to see what would happen. It wasn't a long wait. Less than a month after Harry was arrested, Ruth noticed a van parked outside their New York apartment. It belonged to the Acme Construction Company, and it had been there for several days. But when she looked it up in the phone book, she discovered that there was no business with that name. The truth dawned on her. They were being watched. Soon after, two FBI agents showed up on their doorstep. The agents confiscated several of David and Ruth's letters before taking David into custody for questioning at Bureau headquarters. There, the agents informed David that Harry Gold had identified him and Ruth as the couple he'd met in Albuquerque. In a moment, David's world shattered. The espionage he'd committed years prior had finally caught up with him. So, not long after the FBI knocked on his door, he confessed to spying at Los Alamos. Authorities were closing in on Julius and Ethel, too. One day after David's arrest, the Rosenbergs received a visit from the FBI. Julius was brought in for questioning, though it became clear that they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him. He promptly left the station and contacted a lawyer. Still, the political climate was bleak. Just months earlier, a State Department official who had been accused of being a communist spy was sentenced to five years in prison. His conviction sent a shockwave of anti-communist fear throughout the nation. And just a few weeks after the verdict, Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy gave a rousing speech. In it, he claimed to have knowledge of 205 government workers who were affiliated with the Communist Party. In other words, a witch hunt for communists was sweeping the country. It's important to note a few things here. First, at the time, being a member of the Communist Party wasn't illegal. In fact, it was supposed to be a guaranteed right under the First Amendment. 
and belonging to the Communist Party or believing in communist ideas was not the same thing as spying for the Soviet Union. But the problem was, many people conflated the two. They thought that everything from organizing workers' strikes to fighting against racial segregation made someone a communist, and thus a traitor. McCarthyism, the name given to anti-communist hysteria, affected everyone, from ordinary people to the biggest stars in Hollywood. Many leftists faced losing their careers if they didn't call out fellow travelers. As a result of all the fear-mongering, Americans felt like the world was on the verge of nuclear war. That anxiety came to a head on June 25, 1950, less than two weeks after the U.S. government arrested David Greenglass. On that day, North Korea invaded South Korea. But this war was different. Now, allies on both sides had atomic bombs at their disposal. Americans read the news in terror, trembling at the thought of nuclear annihilation. And all their rage turned towards anyone who aided the communist cause. For the Rosenbergs, this meant all fingers were pointing at them. Just a few weeks later, Julius Rosenberg was arrested, leaving everyone to wonder what punishment he might face. Coming up, the crime of the century. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On July 17, 1950, amidst the wave of anti-communist sentiment sweeping the country, Julius Rosenberg was arrested on charges of conspiracy to commit espionage. He was accused of passing on information that helped the Soviet Union build an atomic bomb. That evening, no less than 12 FBI agents pulled up to the Rosenberg's apartment. They arrived ready to search the place from top to bottom. Julius was taken away in handcuffs, while other agents herded Ethel and their two sons into one of the bedrooms. Then they confiscated letters, photographs, and Ethel's typewriter. When Ethel asked if the agents had a warrant, they scoffed and called her question a, quote, typical communist remonstrance. Only later would the world learn that there was no warrant. However, None of this mattered at the time. Less than a month later, on August 11th, Ethel was arrested as well. For the couple, the end of the road seemed imminent. Surely they'd confess. After all, everyone else who'd been involved in their inner circle had cracked under questioning. But not the Rosenbergs. They refused to admit anything. Not only did the couple deny being involved in any spy activity, they also didn't answer any questions about their past involvement in the Communist Party. 
the FBI responded by playing hardball. Under a law called the Espionage Act of 1917, the Rosenbergs could face the death penalty, which the Bureau made very clear they'd pursue. No one in the history of the United States had ever been executed for spy-related activities during peacetime. So to propose the death of the couple was shocking, especially considering that they had two young children. The FBI stood behind its assertion that they were guilty of espionage. Director J. Edgar Hoover believed the threat of a conviction would force them to talk. If Ethel faced a severe punishment, Julius would feel pressured to confess. Hoover used the possibility of a stiff sentence as a lever in his words to play husband and wife off of one another. But it didn't work. One interrogation followed another, yet both Rosenbergs remained tight-lipped. The couple's loyalty failed to extend to their closest friends, though, because Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, was singing like a canary. Remember, according to David, it was Julius who convinced him to gather information from Los Alamos, where he'd worked on the Manhattan Project. David's story was that he fell sway to Julius's deceptive arguments about helping the Soviet Union. This was the primary evidence against the Rosenbergs. There were essentially no other tapes or documents. Still, on August 7, 1950, David secretly spoke before a grand jury. There, he testified to Julius's actions in the spy ring. Surprisingly, though, he claimed that his sister Ethel wasn't involved at all. He swore that he'd never mentioned anything about it to her. Thus, the case against Ethel looked like it had no legs. She technically hadn't done anything. But just 10 days before the Rosenberg's trial, David changed his tune entirely. He told the FBI that both Julius and Ethel were part of the spy ring. Ethel, he said, had even typed up notes while David recounted what he'd learned at Los Alamos. This complete reversal from his previous testimony was powerful, and it was critical to the FBI's case against the couple. As part of David's new testimony, the FBI promised that they wouldn't charge his wife, Ruth. However, the Rosenbergs had no idea that David altered his account. Only the prosecution team and the FBI knew what he was really going to say on the witness stand. The trial began on March 6, 1951. Julius and Ethel faced charges of conspiracy to commit espionage, the most serious allegation possible during peacetime. They couldn't be charged with treason because the U.S. wasn't actually at war with the Soviet Union at the time of the alleged crime. At New York's Southern District Federal Court, reporters and spectators packed into the room like sardines. They leered at Ethel's outfit, which included a drab, baggy coat and a large, flowery hat that was outdated for the period. The room was completely devoid of moral support for the Rosenbergs, save for their lawyers. Their families had abandoned them, eager to distance themselves from the relatives who'd brought on such disgrace. And much of America, too, had turned its back on the couple. From the outset, 
It seemed like their fate had already been decided. It wasn't just about their individual crimes. It was what the Rosenbergs represented. They had become scapegoats for Americans' fear and rage around communism. People blame the Rosenbergs for the state of the world, for the millions of people dying in Korea, and even for future nuclear conflicts. J. Edgar Hoover referred to their case as, quote, the crime of the century. This bias even extended to the judge. During the course of jury selection, Judge Irving Kaufman made it known that he believed the evidence would show the Rosenbergs to be part of a communist espionage ring. Still, despite the desperate odds, the Rosenbergs knew that there was no hard evidence against them. There was just David's testimony, which they believed would only indict Julius. There was no way to convict Ethel. For the couple, the most essential part of the trial was to remain calm and collected and to not say anything. They pleaded the Fifth Amendment, simply refusing to answer questions about their involvement in communist activities. This plan backfired. The press zeroed in on Ethel, fascinated with painting her as a Soviet spy. They interpreted her emotionless expression as proof of her coldness and guilt. Some even presumed that she was the real mastermind behind Julius's spying. Then the final blow came when David Greenglass took the stand on the third day. In his new version of events, he made sure to implicate both Julius and Ethel. Next, his wife Ruth testified. She corroborated her husband's story, carefully emphasizing Ethel's involvement. Both she and David had been coached by the prosecution to make sure that their stories matched exactly. As Ethel listened to her brother and sister-in-law betray her, she sat motionless. Whatever emotions ran through her, she didn't reveal them on her face. By March 28th, the trial held its closing arguments. The lead prosecutor reiterated Ethel's direct involvement. He claimed that as she typed up David's notes, she'd, quote, struck the keys blow by blow against her own country. It took the jury just one day to deliberate. They returned a verdict of guilty as charged. The courtroom hummed with excitement as spectators celebrated. Meanwhile, Julius and Ethel didn't move. Throughout the trial, they'd been like stones. Now that their fate was sealed, their behavior was hardly different. But there was still the sentencing and the possibility that the judge, Irving Kaufman, might give Ethel a lighter penalty. Surely, he wouldn't take away both parents of a family. And in the United States, a woman had never received the death penalty for a crime other than murder. Yet during sentencing on April 5th, Kaufman said that he considered the Rosenberg's crimes worse than murder. They would both face death by the electric chair. The Rosenbergs received the harshest sentence of anyone in their spiring by far. Julius's former classmate, Morton Sobel, got 30 years in prison. So did Harry Gold. 
Klaus Fuchs got 14 years, though he only served nine. David Greenglass, for his role in convicting the Rosenbergs, got 15 years, and his wife Ruth walked away scot-free. It was clear that something about this humble husband and wife who had betrayed their country so grievously and yet refused to speak or show any remorse struck a nerve. Anti-communists were intent on making an example of them. After the sentencing, police led Julius and Ethel to separate cells before they were driven back to prison. As they waited, they sang for each other like they used to in their younger courting days. Julius struck up the patriotic anthem, Battle Hymn of the Republic. In response, Ethel sang the aria from the tragic opera, Madame Butterfly. The declaration of the Rosenberg's death penalty captured the world's attention. Around the globe, people were shocked at the cruelty of the sentence. It seemed like an inversion of everything the U.S. stood for. American claims about communist oppression now rang hollow and hypocritical. Protests erupted in 48 countries. In Great Britain, activists set up a defense committee for the Rosenbergs. Capitalist versus communist no longer mattered. People thought it was outrageous that two parents should die simply for the crime of spying. Plus, numerous famous figures stood up for the Rosenbergs, including Albert Einstein, Pablo Picasso, Frida Kahlo, and the Pope. Even American ambassadors outside the U.S. noticed the situation worsening. With growing unease, they sent hundreds of memos to Washington, D.C. The Rosenberg case was causing international public opinion to plummet. Still, the Rosenbergs faced the most unforgiving sentiment at home from the American public and the government. In December 1952, the couple wrote to President Harry Truman asking him to commute their sentence. For 21 days straight, protesters held vigil outside the White House while Truman debated what to do. The reality was most Americans actually supported the executions. And Truman, even though he was about to leave office, didn't want to risk appearing soft on communists, especially ones as demonized as the Rosenbergs. Ultimately, their request was denied. The rejection came as another blow to an already difficult time. Throughout the lengthy appeals process, the Rosenbergs waited in prison, and of the two, Ethel had it particularly hard. Soon after her trial, she was transferred from a prison within the city where she had friends to Sing Sing Prison north of New York. She was the only inmate on women's death row. For two years, her only company was the prison matrons who guarded her cell. Despite the outpouring of international support, Ethel's thoughts remained focused on her two young children, whom she hadn't seen for eight months. Though the boys had many relatives, no one wanted to adopt them. Instead, the boys were shuttled between a children's home and Julius's elderly mother. Hoping for a breakthrough, the Rosenbergs appealed their sentence a total of 22 times in the two years they were held, seven of them before the Supreme Court. Each one was summarily denied. With their last appeal finally exhausted, the date of their execution was set 
for June 19, 1953. As the day approached, the Rosenbergs made one last attempt by writing to the new president, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Maybe he'd have a change of heart and show mercy. The Rosenbergs weren't the only ones waiting for the 11th hour. The FBI was sure that Julius or Ethel would eventually crack under the pressure and admit to their crimes. Agents would be on hand via a telephone, connected directly to the execution chamber, in case either decided to make any deathbed confessions. On the day of the execution, around 500 protesters gathered outside of the White House, both for and against the Rosenbergs. It was a country divided. Meanwhile, at Sing Sing Prison, Julius and Ethel sat in a room, talking softly. The day before was their 14th wedding anniversary. At least today, their last day on Earth, they were allowed to spend together. As they waited, so did everyone in the nation, wondering what Eisenhower would do. That morning, the president issued a statement. He began by saying that the Rosenbergs had received every due process of the American justice system. And then he announced the following, quote, I can only say that by immeasurably increasing the chances of atomic war, the Rosenbergs may have condemned to death tens of millions of innocent people all over the world. The final chance to change their fate had passed. Nothing could save the Rosenbergs now. Originally, the time of death had been set for 11 p.m. Since that was during the Jewish Sabbath, the Rosenbergs' lawyers had asked for the time to be delayed. In a cruel moment of irony, it was instead moved up to 8 p.m. When the time came, Julius entered the execution chamber first. Only a small group was permitted inside. The prison warden, the executioner, a few witnesses and reporters, and a rabbi. Ethel wasn't allowed. Once the group gathered, everyone waited expectantly for his last words. But just like during the trial, Julius remained stoic and silent. He showed no regret, remorse, or guilt. He removed his glasses before guards strapped him into the chair. They placed electrodes along his leg and put a black helmet on his head. After three jolts and a few minutes, it was all over. Julius was dead at 35 years old. Attendants unstrapped his body and laid him on a gurney, then covered it with a sheet and wheeled him out. Then they wiped down the chair with ammonia. The women's prison matron then led Ethel from her cell to the chamber. Before she was strapped into the chair, the two women embraced. Then the matron quickly left the room in tears. Just like her husband, Ethel was strapped into the chair. She too remained silent as the helmet was placed over her head and the warden prepared to flip the switch. In total, Ethel received five jolts. Her pulse was still present after the first three, so she was strapped back into the chair and given two more. After about five minutes, it too was over for 37-year-old Ethel. 
Immediately after, radios announced the deaths of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The world responded with mixed reactions. In Paris, thousands rioted in front of the American embassy. Almost 400 people were arrested. Meanwhile, in the U.S., others celebrated. Car horns honked and people cheered. And some were in silent despair. A crowd of 5,000 in Union Square, New York, held a vigil. With all hope gone, they hung their heads and went home, wondering what the world had come to. In such a polarized world, no one could agree on whether the Rosenbergs deserved the ultimate sentence they'd received. Because everyone kept coming back to one question. Were they actually guilty? Since the 1950s, declassified documents have revealed the real story of the Rosenbergs and what Julius and Ethel did and didn't do. It has led to stunning developments about the FBI, the KGB, and Ethel's brother, David. So next time, we'll look at three conspiracy theories related to the case. Like conspiracy theory number one, the Rosenbergs were targeted because of their ethnic identity. And conspiracy theory number two, the Rosenbergs did give the Soviets the information they needed to build an atomic bomb. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, while Julius may have been guilty of espionage, Ethel was innocent. The Rosenbergs became symbols of how paranoia can override justice. And though the government ended their lives, they couldn't kill the truth. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Rosenbergs, amongst the many sources we used, we found the website the Atomic Heritage Foundation extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kirsten Liu, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from ParCast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify.